comes from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word of the Lord. It's a very different approach to the Christmas story, but what John writes about the nature of the incarnation, that is the doctrine of God coming into humanity, is vital for us to see. So we're going to look at both the Genesis and this idea of the Logos. The The word Logos is a Greek word, and what it means is uh, it's translated into English most often as the word. Now, before we get into discussion with that, uh, I want to make it plain that the Bible that you have in your hand is the scripture, and in that sense, it is, the it is the word of God. But the scriptures that you have are not the logos of God. They are not the word of God, uh, eternally uh, existent, begotten, not made, which we confess every week. Jesus Christ is not your Bible. Your Bible is not Jesus Christ. Your Bible testifies to Jesus Christ. And it's, un it's an unfortunate coincidence that the word of God or the logos of God happens to, in English, kind of be an exact phrase translation of the word of God. So we use that same phrase to mean two different things. That's why it's helpful when you're looking at this thing, uh, looking at this idea, to use the word logos. So just so no one uh, gets tripped up, uh, the, the scriptures you have, uh, whether it's English Standard, King James, NIV, whatever you want to say, that was not eternally existent with the Father. That was produced by Zondervan less than a decade ago. Uh, you, you do not worship the scriptures. You worship the Word of God, the Logos of God. So just so you're clear on that, some, some believers... Uh, get tripped up by that idea, and uh, it's helpful to understand the difference. Um, 
we're going to look at how Jesus comes into the world. We've been focusing on Israel, and, and yet he also, his coming doesn't just touch Israel, but it touches also all of the world. And John deals with this by speaking in terms of uh, cosmic language, universal language. Uh, he uses words like world, light, life, uh, and he's speaking of these things from a spiritual reality, uh, which of course must be manifest and is the point of of this text is that the spiritual reality that is Jesus Christ uh, eternally existent has been incarnated or uh, indwelling, uh, tabernacling among us as it as it speaks of in this passage, and that is how the light of the world comes into the world is through the incarnation. We're going to look at what John says concerning the light of the world uh, and why it had to be made flesh, why it had to come into the earth. And then finally, after talking about the incarnation uh, and what it speaks to us, we're going to look really briefly at the Christmas gifts of the Lord. That is, how is Jesus Christ the precious gift from God to the world? And what what does he bring with him and what does he accomplish? Without him coming, uh, those things would have never been accomplished. So we're going to uh, look at this passage in detail in the beginning was the word and the word was god and the word uh, sorry the word was with god and the word was god john begins this gospel invoking the structure and language of the book of genesis if you know anything about genesis 1 1 it says what in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth so john is likewise giving a uh, a tautology that is a, a strict definition of who the word of God, the Logos of God is. And he does that saying that in the beginning was the word of God. Now, this does not mean that Jesus Christ as the Logos of God or the word of God was in the beginning uh, made, but rather it says that the word was and the word was in a state before the beginning. That is in the beginning, the word already was. Does that make sense? He's not saying in the beginning, Jesus Christ was made and then the world was made through him. That is the error of the Jehovah's Witness and many other cults. That is the error of uh, many heresies throughout, throughout time. And Jesus Christ, as demonstrated in John 1, 1, already was existing with God and was God. So John here is presenting the beginnings of New Covenant or New Testament Trinitarian theology. That's why we sang holy, holy, holy this morning, because John is demonstrating that the word of God, the word which proceeds from the Father's mouth, that word, the, in, the uh, eternally existent word of God, is not just the word of God, but he is also God himself. And so John here is giving a massive statement what John is doing is he is stating that the word coming into the world is just as important as the creation story itself. Um, this is this is the way that New Testament writers uh, take the the covenant realities which have come about in the New Covenant and emphasize them by connecting them, uh, literally speaking, to events that took place in the Old Covenant. We've been looking at exile and how the Lord brought uh, Israel out of Egypt, and yet in her in his warnings to her, he says, "You'll go into another nation." And so, the, the those prophets are warning the Israel about the fact that they may may return to Egypt, where God told them, "You will never go that way again." So this is this is the pattern of uh, 
understanding and highlighting. Remember, John is writing in Greek on parchment or maybe on some sort of scroll. He does not have at his disposal highlighting, bold text. He doesn't even have capitalization in that language. So the way that the scriptures are written, they are written and emphasized by literary structure And that's how we understand the importance. So getting behind John's understanding, he's saying that in the beginning, although we have seen through the writings of Moses, who the the Hebrews believe wrote the Pentateuch, uh, Moses writes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John comes along and says, in the beginning, the word was with God. What he's doing is saying that Jesus Christ existed before the creation of the world. This is... Uh, this is describing not only Jesus's existence, but also his role. So Jesus is not a casual bystander, kind of, you know, playing ping pong with the angels while the creation's going on. Jesus Christ is the one through whom all things were made. This is a, a massive doctrine. In verse three, it says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, many Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or other cultists, they say, well, Jesus Christ was made and then God uh, through Jesus Christ made the world. That is patently false. And John 1, 3 demonstrates that because it says that not anything was made uh, except through him. So I want you to imagine two uh, imagine just a big sheet of paper, if you will, or you could even do this on a piece of paper at your uh, disposal. But I want you to draw a line down the middle, and I want you to put over on one side God, and then all things that were made, right? Or put down things that were not made, and then all things that were made. Now, what it says is that through Jesus Christ, all things were made, right? And then it says on the other Uh, on the other side, that not anything which was made was made without him. So all things that were made were made through Jesus Christ. How can you believe that Jesus Christ was a made thing if all things were made through him? It is a logical impossibility beyond the mysteries of the doctrine of the incarnation or the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of the virgin birth. That is a logical impossibility because it doesn't follow. You can't have something that was made through Jesus Christ if Jesus Christ was a made thing. That just doesn't, that's not logically possible. And John here is dealing in this realm. He's dealing in the realm of demonstrating the incarnation as a theological reality, a theological necessity, demonstrating the nature of God, and also showing us a little bit about God's heart and intentions. So John here is working with some massive ideas. He's demonstrating that the word of God, the the thing through whom all things were made, was not just a uh, thing that was made, but it was eternally existent. And not only eternally existent, but also God himself. This is beautiful. John's inclusion of Genesis demonstrates that he understands the coming of the Christ in the flesh as being worthy of comparing it to the creation if you were here in the Sunday school hour, you may have mentioned, uh, you may have heard that uh, Jesus Christ is the one bringing the new heavens and the new earth into the world. That's what John is stating here. This doctrine is immense, and John says that it not only illuminates our understanding of God, but that understanding of God also illuminates the whole world. 
John sees this Logos, the word of God, not just as a world creator, but the source of life and spiritual light, which has come to illumine the whole world. This is this is a beautiful thing. God, through, through the word of God, uh, God makes everything. And the word of God being part of that creation is not detached. That that action of creation is not God flinging the universe into existence and then, as the deists believe, distancing himself in such a way as to never involve himself once again. God is not a master clockmaker who's wound everything up, put all the gears in the right places, you know, lubricated the sprockets and then set it to motion and then letting it run, run its course. God makes the world and then the word of God comes into the world, bringing the world light. The very God who spoke and said, let there be light, became himself in flesh, uh, a human being, bringing with him the light of the world. He is, he, as he testifies about himself, the light of the world. And he comes to bring light to a, a world. Now, if a world needs light, it follows logically that that world is what? Dark. You don't turn on lights at least not in my house because I'm cheap. You don't turn on lights when a room is full of light. You don't need them. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. What does that tell us? There is no light in the world except Jesus Christ. There is no revelation. There is no wisdom apart from Jesus Christ and those who by his spirit he has illumined, that is the prophets of old, which we see in the scriptures. But there is no wisdom or light or life outside of Jesus Christ. John says this, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Outside of Christ is not life. In him was life, and therefore that life is the light of men. That's the spiritual, that is the way by which men see the path of their life and, and can consider the end of their days. He is the light of the world, and without Jesus Christ, there is no light at all. And of course, John brings this out. We said you don't turn on a light in a room full of light. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John is de demonstrating the victory of the light coming into the world. And he does this in such a way as not only as we've seen in our first examination of, of verse one through three, he does it in a way demonstrating truth, but now we're going to look at how those same verses also demonstrate the light of, uh, of God's revelation to man, which God initiates, not, not men seeking out, as smashing the contrary ideas and philosophies of the day. That light is the only light we have, and apart from that light, we only have darkness. Uh, if you are a student of history or you've seen any movies, perhaps you've seen like The War of the Titans or maybe Troy uh, or maybe um, even Gladiator. In Gladiator, there's a few uh, Roman gods. It's not a Greek movie. It's a Roman movie. Um, or well, it's not a Roman movie, it's an English movie and it takes place set in a historical Roman uh, experience and you see, um, oh, what, what's his name? Gladiator? Russell Crowe. You see Russell Crowe there and he's kneeling and he's offering up incense to these little uh, God figures. Well, what he's doing there is 
both the Greeks and then later the Romans created what we understand to be a pantheon, that is a large collection of a lot of gods. The Greeks and the Romans were polytheists. They believed in many gods uh, and they created these mythologies or origin stories of epic proportions. Uh, the Greeks uh, basically had this idea that, um, well, before there were any gods, there was this primordial chaos. And out from chaos came the primordial gods, or and that primordial means just before the world, mordial, mortis. You'd ask Emily later uh, how to break that down etymologically. She's the one who took Latin, not me. Uh, but that is, those are gods which come about, uh, they are given rise to before uh, the world is made, before the universe is made. And so these primordial gods then create the universe. They create the boundaries of the universe and they create the earth and they create space time and, and what we understand to be the cosmos, or that is what we confess in the Nicene Creed, everything that was made or not made, or, or sorry, uh, seen or unseen. That is the physical world and also the metaphysical world and the, the realm of logic. These primordial gods give rise to that space. And then these primordial gods have children. So these gods are not eternal. And these gods are, are giving rise to other gods. And these gods, the uh, Titans, begin to uh, form the earth and, and set up you know, water and there's various gods of land. And it, it's very complicated and it's hard to keep in your mind. Um, but these gods are, are constantly at war with each other. Uh, there's, there's adultery, there's uh, conspiracy. Some gods kill other gods, some gods rape other gods. It's, it's a terrifying situation. It's just chaos. And uh, that makes sense when you understand their ideal from which these gods came, chaos. The Titans then give rise to the Olympians, and the Olympians, the chief of whom you may know as Zeus, uh, gives rise to men. And so these, these various mythologies, uh, by the way, all of that is, is uh, tangential because there are mythologies that don't agree with, there's no canon of mythology, but needless to say, it's a very confusing system, and the reason why is because it has no light in it. And so the Greeks create this myth, uh, this mythology, and they they worship these gods, they pray to these gods, they ask these gods for for crop blessings and and people blessings and the blessings of children and and uh, war and and strife and business and all of these things. They have a god for every situation, and these gods uh, are constantly at war with themselves, and they beget a mankind who is not made in an image of God, but rather a mankind that is innately at strife with fellow man. That's what you see in Greek mythology. Now, there's another thing that happens. A few centuries of mythology takes place in Greek culture, and then there comes along these people named the philosophers. Perhaps if you've seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, you may know one of them as Socrates, right? The, the milk crates, and then there's the Socrates. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, they go back in time and they get this guy named Socrates. Well, one of Socrates' buddies, his, his name's really Socrates, um, one of Socrates' friends was Plato. And Plato was a very well-respected philosopher. In fact, he's probably the most popular philosopher in, of the Greeks. And uh, Plato started, he didn't make the stuff in the sand with the toys for the kids. That's Plato. 
not Plato. He's not Plato. Plato created a system of philosophy called Platonism. It's named after him. And in Platonism, they basically said, well, we can understand the physical world. And by understanding the physical world through our observations, we can make deductions or we can make inferences from the things which are seen to understand the things which are not seen. And so the, the Platonic philosophers started to develop this idea. Well, if I have a table here, there is some sort of thing that tells me what a table is. And it's not just my instinct. They didn't have that concept necessarily. Uh, that's kind of a more uh, post-enlightenment concept. But they basically see things like, oh, well, that's a chair and it has legs and it has a back and you can sit on it. And that is a particular type of a chair, but behind and underneath that chair is chairness and the idea of chairs. Now that takes place in their system of Platonism. That takes place for everything that is. Everything that is, the Platonists believe, has an underlying essence or entity or, or spirit behind it. Uh, they maybe wouldn't call it a spirit, but they would at least call it an idea underneath. And that idea uh, which for them is not an impersonal idea, or is an impersonal idea. It's just kind of a, a, a necessary element, logically speaking, in their philosophy and their in their metaphysic. And that thing, that chairness or that tableness, they all derive all those nesses derive from something else. And that something else that they believe to have created both the good and the bad, everything that's you know physical, everything that's demonstrated, everything that's living, all of those things derive their entity or derive their existence from a thing called the word. And the word or the logos, as we've been looking at earlier, is the thing which gives all other things their thingness. This is a weird idea. And if you've never spent any time thinking about philosophy, it sounds a little nuts. My, my desire is not to teach you Platonism, although it's helpful to understand, um, as, you know, to, to be able to read the pagan writers and, and understand what they're saying and, and disagree with them. Um, but their system of Platonism was upheld by uh, and uh, by this idea of the logos. The, the word is the word which gives rise to all the subjects and verbs, if you will. Everything that is or can be doing something, uh, it derives from the word. And for the Platonists, the, everything that exists came about or was given rise to by these set of ideals. The logos or the word being the chief of that hierarchy, the, the zenith of that uh, pinnacle. If you can think of it like a, a family tree or a, a, gen, a genetic tree or the classification of animals, uh, you can think of it as the classification of ideas. And so for the Platonists, the word is the pinnacle idea. It is the thing from which all ideas are given rise. Now, understanding that context, this is why you should uh, endeavor over the years to become a student of history. Uh, understanding that Let's look at how John uses those ideas. He takes that exact term and he then incorporates it. John demonstrates that through the incarnation, God topples both the myth and the philosophies. And we see that by his demonstration of the word and how the word relates to God. Instead of a pantheon of gods, God Almighty is one. He says the word was and the word was with God and the word was God. 
And so you create a logical necessity. If the word exists and the word is with God and the word is God, that creates a, uh, a necessity to understand something about the nature of God, which cannot plainly be deduced just by thinking about it. It has to be revealed. And so John is saying that God is not a God given rise to from chaos, who then begets other gods who rape and pillage and war, who then after uh, years and, and uh, you know, centuries of deceit and strife, they then give rise to humanity. He's saying that God, uh, through the word, makes everything. It's not a series of titaned gods, both competing, well, I'll make the world and I'll make the universe and then I'll make war. And, uh, you know, these gods who give rise to the earth out of their strife, but rather a God who is the light of men giving rise to uh, existence. So John not only topples uh, the pantheon of gods, but also he topples the philosophers who posit that the Logos is some sort of impersonal idea, as if uh, just ideas themselves can give rise to or, or cause things to exist. Think about this, for example, uh, the, the symbol pi. Perhaps you remember this in math class. There's this, there's this thing that they call a transcendental number, and that's a really big term to just mean that we can't represent it well in you know, normal numbers, as in one, two, three, four. It's a number which goes beyond our ability to describe in normal numbers. It transcends. And so pi is this kind of number. And it's this number which we can kind of get at and we can look at through geometry or through nature. We can observe certain things. And there are these numerical constants which we've discovered through, uh, through math. And the Platonists basically believe that something with the order of this numerical constant or an, an idea gave rise to existing things, which plainly is logically impossible. Ideas do not have wills. Ideas do not have energies by which they can act. John is demonstrating that God is a person, and God decides personally to create the world. God has a will. God has a word, and that word is spoken, and through that word, man is made. Now, that's really nerdy, all of that. It's really philosophically important. Uh, you may consider that to be uh, boring, but I would posit that this is the, the beginning of the record of the triumph of Christianity over Greek culture. And understanding that, we see the value of, of doing a little bit of history homework. It pays to go to school. Um, John here is demonstrating the, the superiority of the Christian understanding of nature, of who God is, and the way that the world works, and the way that the world was made, and he smashes in just a few sentences the, both the philosophies and the myths. Now, if you're talking about culture war, that is some pretty amazing artillery. John is doing an amazing thing. This amazing thing, though, is not just helpful in defeating the Greek culture. It's helpful in understanding God. This, this provides for us spiritual nourishment to meditate on the nature of God, to meditate on the, the awesomeness of who God is in his person and in how he exists. And those things are the spiritual uh, goals of reading the word of God. The, re the reading of the word of God should produce within you an adoration both of what God has done and who God is. That is, that is why it's worth doing, uh, doing reading. That's why it's worth studying the scriptures. So John demonstrates this. And then 
uh, he continues. As if John has not done enough already, he then begins to destroy even more vain imaginations and philosophies. He says the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The true light is contrasted here with the false light. Every other idea of how the world was made or how life works or how the universe uh, is set up, all of those ideas John calls false light. He says this is the true light. Why does he add the word true? Because there is false light. The true light which gives life to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was not made, uh, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He then, uh, John, then goes on to say, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John has not only just destroyed the Greeks; he is now coming and bearing witness against the pay, uh, against the idolatrous Israelites, not the faithful ones who receive him, but rather the majority who do not. John is doing theological war. That's why as, as a man, it's uh, encouraging sometimes to read the scriptures and to see how amazing God is in his triumph over all false religions. John is demonstrating that the, the people of Israel did not receive the word. He did, they did not receive God himself. It's not just the Israelites deciding, oh, we don't like Jesus' teachings. John is saying that the Israelites, those who don't receive him, did not receive him, the word of God. It's not just his style. It's his essence. It's, it's who he is. It's his person. Now, this is where we as Gentiles, those who were not part of the, the lineage of Israel, then begin to glory because God has brought in us into an amazing grace. In the next verses, it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you have come to rest in Jesus Christ, you have not been born of your own effort. You were not born of your will. You were born of God. It's an amazing reality. Without the light coming into the world, the world would be in complete darkness. And even so, the light has a people and the people reject him. This is giving a concise summary in only a sentence or a phrase or two of all of the old covenant reality. The Israelites reject Christ and yet he still comes. The light of the world bestows on these who receive him the right to become exactly like him, that is, a child of God. Now, when we say that as Christians, we do not believe in any way that you as a Christian, you as a believer in Jesus Christ, become the incarnate uh, uh, Son of God. We do not teach when we say that you are, you are becoming a child of God. We do not teach that you are becoming the uncreated second person of the Trinity, God the Son. That, of course, is heresy. But what we're understanding when we see John say these words, that Jesus Christ, the word, uh, or sorry, that God himself, who gives to all those who believe in his word, that is the, the logos of God, the right to become children of God, is he's saying that God is adopting these people who were not God's people into be his people. It says that those who were his own, those who God possessed or those who God had, did not receive him, but those who God didn't have, the ones who did receive him, he then made them his people. This is beautiful. Amazingly, this revelation continues. Not only is this Logos a personal entity, we've been looking at that for, for a while, that the Logos is not just the one through whom all things were made, but he's also a person who was with God 
and is equal to God. He was God. But also this person then does something amazing. Here, John begins to smash all of the Gnostic doctrines, that is, which say that the created world, the things that we see, they're really bad, and you got to run away from those, and you got to become spiritual. This is also the, the religion of Buddhism, that the world, material possessions are wrong, and it's wrong to, be, uh, to become attached personally with your emotions to other people. And in fact, they go beyond that and say, uh, some of those philosophies actually say the, the physical world, the material world, is actually a shadow. It's a veil. It's not real. And it's blinding you. Uh, from understanding true reality. That's what Christian science teaches. They, they teach that, th- that you are really a spirit and that you've been trapped accidentally in these earthly bodies, which are keeping you down from ascending into the heavens, spiritually speaking. Or in Buddhism, they call it reaching nirvana. John smashes those doctrines. He smashes those religions by saying that not only is the word a person, but also the word became flesh. He became a man. And if the world, if the physical world was evil, if the physical world was to be avoided, then how could God, who the word, the logos of God, how could he come and become flesh? It would be uh, paramount to saying that God, who we understand to be eternally good, somehow did something and became etern- eternally bad, right? The word of God comes and takes on flesh elevating the nature of man and forever altering it in such a way as to demonstrate the glory of the father. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, although this was written about 700 years before Islam was brought onto the earth, uh, John here demonstrates that Jesus Christ is not a prophet, but rather the son of God, the only son of God, and the only one who brings the glory of God onto the earth. John says of this one, he says, he is full of grace and truth. There is nothing lacking in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not 90% full. He is full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ brings with him a message of grace and a message of truth, and there is nothing lacking in that message. The Logos has come into the world, and he has been seen with human eyes. John, as an apostle, says, we have beheld his glory. And in verse 16, he then says, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now, what I want to impress upon you is that the doctrine of the incarnation, that is, that God the, God the Word, eternally existent with God, uh, eternally equal with God, being God himself, coming into the world, not only elevates the nature of man, in, in that he's the light to every man, in that somehow through Jesus Christ coming into the world, the world is different, but also he gives the right of those who believe in him to be sons of God. They're adopted by God. And then John takes it a step further. He says that from Jesus or from the word, we have received grace upon grace. What John is demonstrating is not only was Jesus Christ in his incarnation glorious in himself, but there has been a transfer. John the apostle says, we have received from him grace upon grace. Jesus Christ completed his mission. John, of course, is writing this gospel after the whole thing takes place. So John is able to say, we have received. But Jesus Christ in his coming makes a transfer of glory from God to man, and specifically the apostles. 
The word himself is the source of our life, as we see in this passage. And without the word coming or without the world being, we would have no life and we would have no light. Without the word of God coming into the world, we would be forever trapped in darkness. These are the the Christmas gifts of God. This is what the doctrine of the incarnation teaches us, not just about God, but also about his son and the nature of God, the nature of the world, who we are, those those of us who have believed in his name, and also what God is doing, what his mission was. Without the light of the world coming into the world, we would have forever remained in darkness. And though you like it, uh, though you may not like this idea, those who do not come to faith in Jesus Christ are still groping about in the dark, looking for something to guide their way. John here says that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and the light comes into the darkness, and the darkness does not overpower it. This is an amazing gift. Jesus Christ is demonstrated in this passage, not as just being the Logos of God or the ideal, the one beyond whom nothing better could be imagined, but also he's a personal being who makes the world, not only a personal being who makes the world, but also a personal being who comes into the world, giving light to all men and giving the ability or the glory of adoption to those who believe. That is what John is saying takes place in Christmas. Although he doesn't use any words and there's no angels here and there's no shepherds and there's no nativity scene. This is the spiritual understanding or rather the doctrinal understanding of the things beyond uh, the natural eye which take place. Without Christ coming into the world, we would have no light because he is the light of the world. He was a gift from the father to humanity. This is the way by which man should walk. Without him coming into the world, we would have never received grace John here says that grace was deposited through the law of Moses, but that grace was not sufficient enough to cause us to be able to obey from the heart. And then it says that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And that grace upon grace, as we've seen countless times in Sunday schools uh, before, is that the law was grace in that we, by the law, understand what God requires of us. And then through Jesus Christ, truth being manifested and grace being given for us to keep the law from the heart. John then goes on to say that God has been demonstrated through Jesus Christ. In the last verse that we look at today, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. What an amazing truth. What he demonstrates by saying that is that no one apart from Jesus Christ has ever beheld the manifest glory or understood anything clearly about God himself in a true unmediated way. What John is not saying is he's not saying that all the Hebrew uh, prophets and all the patriarchs are wrong. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that no one apart from the Son of God has ever beheld God face to face in such a way as you and I can only use human language to describe. Jesus Christ fully comprehends his Father. And that full comprehension that God the Son has, he demonstrates And that glory has been demonstrated not only through Jesus Christ's teaching, but also his living and his person. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That John is saying that Jesus Christ not only came to bring life and light, but then he goes on to say what that light is. That light 
is a true understanding of God. And therefore, from that true understanding of God, true understanding about the way the world is, or the way the world exists, and how the world works. Remember when we looked at the Greek mythologies, they thought out of chaos came the primordials, and that from the primordials were the Titans, and then the Titans begat the Olympians, right? And we saw how all those gods are constantly warring. Some are raping, some are killing children, some are uh, castrating other gods. It's a terrible situation. Why? Because they begin with from chaos. John here gives a demonstration that God and the word of God are eternally existent. And from that truth, he then works out the way the world exists and the way the world is set up. John doesn't just demonstrate that the world without the light of the world uh, is dark, but then he provides a remedy. He says that the light comes. And so Jesus Christ comes to bring light, and that light specifically is no longer creating vain imaginations of our own, but rather turning with our intellect, with our spirit, with our heart, with our soul, to look upon God in his being, to, to dwell on through faith, through prayer, through contemplation, the mysteries of the incarnation and, and what the incarnation tells us about who God is. And then from there to rightly allow that revelation to renew, as Paul says, the spirit of your minds. That is what the goal of Christian intellectual endeavor is. It is not for you to gain knowledge. It's not for you to be well-read, although that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing to be well-read. But it is not about just accumulating theological facts. It is about understanding the nature of God in such a way as that understanding begins to repair everything about your understanding of the world, of your life, of the way that you relate to his people. God is a relational God, and that is demonstrated in this passage in that God gives those who receive him the ability to be children. That is, God adopts those who believe in Jesus Christ or believe that the word is uh, God. And also, he then gives a revelation of himself through the Son. This is our elder brother speaking to us. What When we uh, sing... Uh, when we sang earlier today uh, that he will be called the everlasting father, the reason Jesus Christ is the son of God, and yet we call him, Isaiah prophesies rightly, that he would be called the everlasting father, is that he is considered to be the one through whom all are the other children of God. It's not as if God the, uh, God the son uh, begets other children of God, but rather relationally speaking, he is the one who accomplishes our adoption. That is, the Father adopts us, but it's transacted through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus Christ can be rightly considered the everlasting Father, because he will never pass away. Jesus Christ is demonstrated at the end of this chapter, or sorry, the end of our, our reading today, as the only one who gives us any revelation about the nature and person of God. And that is the greatest Christmas gift you could ever receive. The word did make us, and because we know that the word made us, we can rightly rest in confidence that what he says about God is true. This is not a rival in the heavenlies with competing gods and a, 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 penal, a, a pantheon of, of just chaos. This is a true God who made us and also gives us a right revelation of, of God the Father. This is a glorious doctrine, and it is rightly uh, to be considered over decades 
I tell you, beloved, that you will receive dividends for your entire life by meditating upon this doctrine frequently. Not just at Christmas time, although it is totally fine to do that. Not just at Christmas time, but to dwell on through faith the nature of the person of Jesus Christ, that he is fully God and yet takes on flesh to be fully man. Those two natures being united forever, elevating the, the nature of man. Jesus Christ, as we've seen year in and year out, year out as, as we celebrate ascension, retains his physical body. That Jesus Christ is our representative in heaven, and that's all possible because he came. And if he hadn't come, it wouldn't be possible. You and I are rightly represented in heaven uh, at the right hand of God, being also with Paul raised through the spirit in heavenly places and seated with Christ. But here, none of that would have been able to take place had Jesus Christ not come and taken on flesh, taken on the nature that you also have. So with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the mighty gifts that you give us in the coming of your son. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a spirit, a desire, a willingness to, with eyes of faith, uh, dwell on and meditate on, contemplate the nature of your son and what the nature of your son tells us about the nature of you, how your son's incarnation reveals your good, kindly father heart. We ask you, Lord, that you would dis demolish every other vain thought which would war against the knowledge of, of Christ in our hearts and in our minds. We pray, Lord, that you would give us willing spirits that would wish to engage our mind on the things of you. Lord, we pray that you would redeem us from a spirituality which does not require any sort of mental engagement. We pray, Lord, that we would believe and understand that our faith is not only historic, but it also is logically sound and is reasonable. Lord, we pray that you would bring us into this over our life, but Lord, that it would, it would not take years, but Lord, that you would do a mighty work, that you would redeem our ability to think and to reason about you and to dwell with eyes of faith. Lord, we know that, produce, that, that dwelling upon you will produce adoration in our hearts. Lord, we know that this wouldn't come from our own effort, but rather it comes from the Holy Spirit revealing these things to our, to our minds, to our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would give us this revelation, that we would take your word and that armed with your word and, uh, and, and accompanied by your spirit, we would truly see who you are. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.